0: Take your Bible, and as you're turning to Ephesians chapter 6, in that Bible in your hand or that you turned on or under the pew, what an incredible book is the Bible. I mean, the Bible claims that it is inerrant, it is infallible, it contains no errors, it contains no mistakes, and all of its words and the totality of all that it is, it is flawless. It is faultless. It is without blemish. Second Timothy two Timothy three sixteen says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. For training in righteousness. The Bible has really all that we need. The psalmist says in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is perfect. That the testimony of the Lord is sure. That the precepts of the Lord are right. And that the commandment of the Lord is pure. In a word, it is flawless. So this inerrant, infallible, authoritative word, we would say is sufficient to accomplish all of God's purposes for his people. And we come to the last statement of the armor, where it says in verse 17, after taking up the helmet of salvation, and then it tells us to take up, linked earlier in verse 17 in the grammar, Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so we come to that last component. If it is the last component, some people would say that when you go into 18 through 20, that all prayer is the last component. Certainly you can't separate those two. But we come to that awesome statement to take up the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Scottish pastor Thomas Guthrie said, the Bible is an armory of heavenly weapons, a laboratory of infallible medicines, a mine of exhaustless wealth. It is a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, and a balm for every wound. And to that end, we come this morning to the Word of God. Now, I have reminded you in past weeks that he's in jail. He's in a Roman cell, a maritime cell, we call that. And uh, they are, were known to be atrocious and filthy. They were often underneath the ground with rats and sewage and all of that. And while he sits in a prison... For the hope of the gospel, he is in chains, and we think likely he might even be, according to verse 20, chained to a Roman soldier. And Paul takes these physical components of the, of the Roman soldier's armor, and he transforms them into a spiritual truth. We've looked at the opening five. He said, put on the, the belt of truth. Remember that belt for the Roman soldier would be tucked in because he, he had a, a garment on that sometimes would extend down to his his uh, ankles and even to his knees. And so when he wasn't in battle, it would go down. But when he needed to prepare for battle and get ready for the battle, he would take that tunic up and he would put it in his trusty belt for speed, for preparedness, and Paul transforms that, and he says, you need to put the belt on, but the belt represents a spiritual truth of the Word of God, and we said that belt of truth stood for the whole counsel of God. It was all the truth. It was the whole truth, and so as he puts this armor on, the soldier would, he would put his belt on first, and Paul's saying, we need to put our belt of the whole council of God. And then he would attach a breastplate. That breastplate, of course, would cover all of the upper area of his body. He would attach that breastplate to his belt. Paul transforms that into a breastplate of righteousness, and we identified that not as our righteousness, but as the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We identified the truth as not our faithfulness to the truth, but the truth of Scripture, the righteousness of Christ. And then he would lace up, if you will, to put on his shoes, what we can call his war boots, if you will, that under the, at the bottom of those boots were those long hobnails and it would allow that soldier in battle to stand firm and not lose his ground. And he, of course, transforms those shoes, as you can see, into the peace of God. And that would be the peace that God gives us because of our standing in Christ. And so he's using these armors and, armor and he's, he's applying it to us and take up the shield of faith. The shield that, that the soldier would have was four and a half feet by two feet. And they would just stand behind that that shield, if you will, and it would intercept those incoming arrows of the evil one, and he transforms it to a shield of the faith that we're to put into practice as we battle the evil one, and then the helmet of salvation the last couple of weeks, protecting um, our future future salvation that that helmet that the soldier would put on would protect his head the helmet that we put on is salvation and specifically that future final hope of the Lord Jesus Christ so we're in the midst of a battle The arrows are flying. The evil one is real. He is shooting. He is looking to penetrate our armor. He's looking to take us, if you will, unaware. He has many schemes. He has a host of demons. And Paul says, listen, as you battle for your family, as you battle for the unity of the church, as you fight for purity, recognize that you're not just fighting against flesh and blood, but you're fighting against the Uh, an evil one who hates God, who hates the local church, who hates us and will do everything. He can't rob us of our salvation, but he certainly would attempt to take our joy. So today we come to that sixth and final component of the armor of God. It's called the sword of the Spirit. I think you recognize that as soon as we come to the sword, all the previous components of the armor of God have been defensive in nature, right? The helmet, the shield, the shoes, and you go down the line, they're in some way giving the soldier, giving you a defensive position. We come to this piece and he actually tells us to take up the sword of the spirit. We have an offensive weapon. Certainly that sword would be defensive as well. He would ward off the blows in a hand-to-hand combat But for the most part, we would recognize this as an offensive weapon. And again, you are, this is the armor of God, but in this case, on the backside of these pieces, to take up your shield, to take up the helmet and put it on, and here to take up the sword of the Spirit that Paul will liken to the Word of God. Here's what I want to do today with, from the text with you. First, I want to identify the specific sword, okay? Let's just identify that in biblical teaching. Secondly, then we'll identify the spiritual truth, and then we'll spend thirdly the bulk of our time to identify the, the specific application of the sword in your life and in my life, okay? We'll identify the physical sword. We will secondly identify the truth behind that. And thirdly, highlight this specific application to stand. But first and briefly here, let's identify the specific sword, the specific sword. Now, when you're looking in the word of God and certainly looking at biblical material and even looking into history, there are two swords that stand out, and we have to identify the specific sword. There was first what we called, even in the last two weeks, a ramphaea sword, a ramphaea sword. That sword could be as long as three to four feet, sometimes uh, even as long, that long, or 40 inches in length. It was a massive sword was a Ramphaa sword. In fact, some would say that the handle was so big that the cavalrymen would sit in their horse and they would wield that sword grasping it with both hands. It was so big, in fact, it was identified in literature as a as a great sword, but it's not just that it's in history. I think really, if you have time, maybe this afternoon or this week, you can look back. I think Paul is borrowing language from Isaiah eleven four. He's borrowing language from 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 that says specifically the Lord Jesus Christ at his second coming, he will destroy the Antichrist. It says there with the breath of his mouth. That breath is pneuma, with the breath of his mouth or the spirit of his mouth. In fact, it's interesting, this Ramphaya sword is in uh, Revelation nineteen fifteen, where it's speaking of Christ at his second coming. It says that from the, his mouth or from the mouth of the one who is called the word of God. So out of the mouth of the one who is called the word of God comes forth a sharp sword and it carries out its purpose. That sharp sword in the Greek uh, in Revelation 19.15 is romphea. So you have this statement of a great sword and certainly in light of a great sword put your helmet on and uh, so here this sword the Ramphaya sword is attributed to the exalted Christ who at least in the Old Testament in the book of Revelation is the divine warrior as he comes at a second coming on that horse he's proclaiming if you will the word of God with his mouth The sword in 19 of Revelation is a sword of judgment on the nations. Now listen, I just say that is a Ramphaya sword. That is not the sword here, okay? You say, well, what's the sword here? Well, again, look at 17. He calls it the sword of the spirit. But the word sword there isn't Ramphaya, the big, great, broadsword. This is a different sword. This is the sword today that you're commanded, if you will, to take up. It's, it's in the Greek. It's a Machaira sword. It is a short sword. Uh, Machaira, maybe out of the Latin, you've heard of the Latin term a machete. That is from the, that word, the Greek here comes the, the Machaira sword. It's a short sword. Sometimes we would call this type of sword here in Ephesians 6:17 a dagger and often the soldier would carry that sword in his sheath if you will at the soldier's side so as he moved out to battle he's got his belt tightened he's got his breastplate on his shoes got the hobnails on it he might be carrying that large wooden door the shield he's got his helmet fixed but he's got a short sword there that when he needs to pull it he can he can be ready to go to battle to go on the offensive but i just identify for you that here is that short sword it is a well known sword in the roman army that sword had Uh, two-edged blade. You understand some, uh, that knife, excuse me, the sword, some have just one side. This one, the the machaira, had a double-edged blade. In fact, I would tell you that in other places in the New Testament, it was lethal. So here, just so you know what we're talking about, we identified the specific sword. It is not the romphaia, It is not the broad sword. It is a, and I think this is huge for understanding in a moment, it is the short sword. It is a dagger. It is a machaira sword. But secondly, from the identity of that specific sword to the uh, identifying its spiritual Truth. Look at the text again in verse 17. He says to take that sword, but then he calls it here, of the Spirit. Let me see if I can translate this for you. Take the sword for you in just a moment in the midst of your temptation and battle. Take the sword that is given by the Spirit of God is the thought. It's the sword that comes from the Spirit. Another way to say it is it's the sword that the Spirit of God has provided, okay? Now, I want to be clear here. The Spirit himself is not the Word. The Word is the Word of God. But the Holy Spirit is the source of God's Word, and he's the one who will bring truth to you in the midst of temptation and the scripture has a cutting edge to it. So the thought here is the spiritual truth is the sword and you can see it. The sword is the word of God. That is the spiritual truth. Of course, we understand from the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 4:12 that the word of God you know it by heart. Is living and active and sharper than any, what? Two-edged sword. There it is. It, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. You say, well, what's the word for war? war sword there? It's the word machaira. And so the word of God is the spiritual truth. And that word that you're holding is... Sharper, obviously, metaphorically, than the sharpest of any swords, okay? That's the thought here. The Spirit of God makes the Word of God an effective tool in our battle against Satan. In other words, God, let me say it this way, has given you a sword, okay, He's given you a sword. The sword is likened to the word of God upon which you and I can strike back against our enemy. And here what Paul is saying is you actually need to take this up, take it up. But let me take you a step further, okay? We've identified the sword, it's the Machaira. We've identified the spiritual truth, that the Holy Spirit is the one that is going to make the the Word of God an effective tool. But let me just, even right now, out of the gate, just take you to the application, okay? Here's the application. Let's identify the spiritual application. Now, he says there in verse 17, which is the Word of God. Now, you're asking, okay, well, we know it's the Word of God, but... Yes, it is the Word of God, but what is the Word of God referring to? Well, he's, he's, you say, it's, it's the Word of God. Well, there, there's two thoughts here on the meaning of this. Number one, some people are saying, take up the sword, and the sword is the Word of God. But really, what Paul's getting at is that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God is the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, as you go out into the state of California, into the midst of this century in which we live, you are to take the sword. The sword is representative of the gospel and its power, and you need to share that gospel against these dark forces and against Satan himself. Ephesians 1.13 is cited where it's called the word of truth, and there must be an element of that. But the second view refers, if you will, to the attacks of Satan that as he comes to you in your life, you are to meet those temptations by specific scripture from the word of God. That's... That's what I believe the meaning is here. I think you would remember that the belt of truth represents the whole truth, represents the whole counsel of God. But here, and that thought of the whole counsel of God is broad, very general. Here is something more specific. Say more specific, you say, well, why do you think that? Well, look again at verse 17. He speaks there, which is the word of god and that phrase there word there's different phrases in the greek language the most common phrase for word of god i think we would well known is the word logos okay in the beginning was the word and the word logos was with god and down, I think it's in verse 14, and the word, Lagos, was God. That is a common statement. And it's a very broad term and a reference to the word of God. But that's not the word here, okay? The word here for word of God is the word rhema. And rhema, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the rhema of God. Rhema here is more specific. It also speaks of a spoken word as Logos does. I don't those words uh, Rhema Logos are used interchangeably, but Rhema in the word of God also can refer to a very specific statement of the word of God. So take up the sword which is the rhema of God, which is a specific word, specific statement, specific portion of God's word. So I take it this way. You and I must know the whole counsel of God, put on the belt of truth, but in the same breath... As you get into temptation, as you pull that sword from that sheath, which is the word of God, you need to pull it and use that machaira in a specific way with specific scripture against particular temptation. It is a specific statement in the word of God that the spirit directs to use against specific attacks. Then you say, well... Okay, Scott, thank you for that lesson. What does that mean? Let me show you. Go over to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. And of course, here in chapter 4, I'm going to examine, we'll highlight from the Word of God, how the Lord Jesus Christ wonderfully used his sword, the Word of God... To defend himself against the attacks of the evil one. And I'll be brief here. But look at Matthew 4. Then Jesus was, one was led into the spirit into the wilderness. Fascinating. He's not led by his flesh. He's led by the, the spirit in the wilderness. And it says to be, shocking in some ways, tempted. By the devil, the spirit, you know, leads him to be tempted by the devil. And he's led, as you can see there, into the wilderness. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, you know the account, he was hungry. And the tempter, it's another name for Satan, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves. There it is. He's in the wilderness. He's there fasting 40 days and 40 nights. And now he enters in by the spirits leading into a battle, if you will, with Satan in an area, if you've been there, of the central plateau of Jerusalem. It's somewhat near the Dead Sea. In the Old Testament, this place of the wilderness was called devastation. It was a place of incredible barrenness. There were rocks, there was heat, there was dust. And Jesus Christ is there all alone. And then the tempter comes And the first temptation, after those days of fasting, the devil comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, we all know that the supernatural wasn't a problem for Christ. All through Matthew, all through John's gospel, he performed many miracles. The main issue here is the wrong use of power. And the key is stated here by the evil one. If you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. If, as, there's, as if there's actually a doubt of that. But that's the tempter. He's going to come at your weakest spot. He's going to come to exploit you. He will come at areas of great blessing, then fatigue sets in. He will come to you at your weakest place, at your weakest emotion, and he will know exactly what concoction concoction he's, you know, delivering up. To give to you, and this is what he did to Satan, if you are the Son of God, if you're in Matthew, just look back a few verses in 3:17, where it says at the baptism of Jesus, behold, a voice came from heaven and said, "This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased." He had already been identified by the voice out of heaven that this is my son. So here, beloved, one of the ways just the evil one comes to you and I, here is a lust of the flesh, okay? If you are the son of God, I'm sure it got much more uh, enticing than that. What are you doing starving in the desert? Starving in this wilderness of barren rock and... Dust in a desert place. Satisfy yourself. I mean, really, if you are the son, how could the father let you go hungry? So right now, lust of the flesh, command that these stones become bread. But I want you to know he, you know that he didn't succumb to that. He answered, here's my point, with a specific statement of Scripture, with a specific rhema of Scripture, according to the specific temptation. He didn't just throw at him John 3, 16. That's me. You know, you could have said, that's me. No, no, no. Look, You say, how did he answer? Well, look, verse 4. He answered, it is... Written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every, what, word, rhema, that comes from the mouth of God. What an incredible statement. You say, what does he do there? You can look in your margin or later. He quotes from the Old Testament which is the word of God. From the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, 3, he says, I live by that which comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus answered specifically with his sword on a rhema of the word of God. First temptation. Second temptation. Look at verse 5 and 6. The devil took him. I don't know. He transported him to a holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and he said this is the evil one in verse six if doubt again if you are the son of God throw yourself down for it is written verse six he will command his angels concerning you I don't don't know exactly what was in Satan's mind there but maybe at the first temptation, he answered with the book of Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone. So maybe what Satan's doing here, oh, you're gonna quote scripture to me, Jesus. I know the scripture as well. And Satan himself quotes Psalm 91, 11. If you're really the son of God, in essence, prove it to me. You claim to be, Satan Saying, the son of God, you quote scripture, but if you won't use divine power to help yourself, let me see if God will use his divine power to help you. In other words, he's misquoting the scripture. Blake was just sharing in the back room as we pray together, those who serve the Lord, that he was on in the class of isms and schisms I mean, you know that all the false cults use the scripture, but they're like a broken clock. They're right once a day. They quote the scripture, they reel people in, but that... But that's just to pull you in. But then they twist the scripture, and thus we have these cults. Satan is quoting the scripture to Jesus. Maybe because he quoted it, I'll quote it too. And, I, and if you won't call on that, then I'll have God call on it. Because it says there, he will command his angels uh, concerning you. So if the first temptation dealt with the uh, lust of the flesh... Here's the pride of life, the pride of life. He's tempting him with the boastful pride of life. You say, well, how did Jesus respond? Well, look at verse seven. He said to him again, second time, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What is that? It is written, He's quoting Deuteronomy 6.16. He's got his Machaira out. The evil one has come to him at a weak spot. And he's quoting in the first temptation, Deuteronomy 8. In the second temptation, as Satan quotes the scripture, he pulls that out, that dagger out. And he quotes, if you will, another portion of Deuteronomy 6.16. You shall not put the Lord your God to test. Here is a masterful use of the scripture. He used scripture to interpret scripture. Then there's a third temptation. Look on in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. We don't, that's about what we know. I'll give you an idea. And he showed them all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these, Satan said, I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. Here's the third test, okay? If you're a servant, why don't you become a king now. I mean, it's all yours. Why wait, Satan is saying, and he comes to us in the, the same way. He, he deals, he shows them all the, the kingdoms of the world. Now, we're not told what high mountain uh, that the devil took him to, but the significance of this high mountain is that it gave I believe a vast view of the whole earth. And it extended beyond any physical vision that could uh, perceive from any vantage point. I think it's beyond that. By some supernatural accommodation, I think the devil showed Jesus the glories of Egypt. Maybe he took them to the pyramids and the the temples and the vast treasures. Maybe he showed them the power and the splendor of all of Rome. Maybe he showed them great Athens from that high mountain. Maybe he showed them magnificent Corinth. Maybe he took them in, if you will, from that high mountain into the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. He showed them, at least the text is indicating, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This is the third temptation. He's coming at, Satan's coming at Jesus. He's coming at you. And he's dealing different pieces. The first one was the lust of the flesh. The second one was the pride of life. And I believe here is the third temptation, the lust of the eyes. He's showing them all, why wait? What are you doing here in the wilderness? Why wait till the finished product? And I believe he knew what it was, Satan, that he was on his way to the cross. But what does Jesus do? Well, it's there, verse 10. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For the third time, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Isn't that precious? The third time, the third time it is written, and in each temptation, Jesus responded with a direct statement of the word of God. That third statement that he quotes there is from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 13. Three times it is written, all from the book of Deuteronomy, and I'm asking, have you read it? Have you read it in the last year? Listen, I want to encourage you. Jesus not only read it, he quoted from it. Specifically, he didn't just randomly throw the Bible out there as though it's some magical book. He took the sword given and provided by the Spirit that the Spirit makes effective, and he used it Wonderfully in them temptation. So, listen if our Lord used specific statements of scripture in order to resist Satan, how much more do we need the word of God to gain victory over the devil? Listen, beloved, you know this Satan is firing darts at you, your shield is extinguishing the incoming missiles, but here. In this life, you pull out that sword out of the sheath and you go, if you will, on the offensive with that dagger and that dagger is the word of God. And again, I'm just going to say it to you in Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living. You're holding it. It's active. It is sharper, sharper. Not as sharp, sharper. Than any two-edged sword, piercing, the writer of Hebrews said, as far as the division of soul and spirit, of of both joints and marrow, it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen, a dagger may kill someone physically. This one's sharper. It will get right down into your soul it will bring joy. It will bring confession. It will bring worship, but you need to be in it. You can't just come to Christ and put cruise control on and think you don't have a responsibility. You are battling an invisible foe. You are battling an an invisible Satan who has a host of demons. You need to put all this armor on, but here you're taking up the offensive. You're taking your sword, not the Romphaea sword. Jesus will come back in Revelation 19 on that one. You're taking out the machaira that seems to lead to a very specific statement of scripture and you're interpreting scripture with scripture. Let me just say this in a sense in just a moment when we come to communion. The whole armor of God, all of it, is a portrait of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14 6, you know this I am the way and the what? the truth. He is, if you will, the belt of truth. We know that we're going to put on the physical breastplate that is the righteousness of Christ, but he is 2 Corinthians 5:21 our righteousness. Thirdly, when we put on the shoes of the gospel of peace, it says in the book of Ephesians as we studied in 2:14, he is our peace. We take up the shield of faith and we need to exercise that faith. But we know that he is our shield. Paul said, you know, it is no longer I, but Christ in me. And he said, by faith, I live in the son of God. Listen, when you trusted Christ, let me put it this way. We received this armor. You've already received it in some ways. But here is this command that if you're going to stand, you have to put it on. In fact, Paul spoke of this. You could look at it in Romans 13, 11. He says, you need to wake up. You can't be passive in this. He said, you need to wake up in Romans thirteen eleven. Then he would tell you and me to cast off sin. Get rid of it. Cast it off. You say, I just can't overcome it. No. Wake up and cast it off. Get rid of it. He tells us in Romans 13 there to put on. It's interesting. He doesn't call it the armor of God, but he says, put on the armor of light. And you do that, if you will, Ephesians 4, by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me say, beloved, we have put on the armor at the moment of salvation, but I would say it has to be daily applied. And I just want you to be sturdy oaks. I I want you not just to look back, praise God, when he saved you. You find yourself in the middle of a battle in sanctification where you're being saved as we talked last week. There's a future that the helmet guards and protects, but daily, you've got to appropriate this word. You say, okay, Pastor Scott, what do you want me to do with the word of God? What am I to do as a single? What am I to do as a mother? What am I to do as an elder or deacon or even a deacon deaconess or a member or you're married or you might be in 7th or 8th grade let me just give you three practical exhortations okay three practices to on the word of god i'm going to put it in this way you need to hide you need to hunger and you need to hold the word of god in your heart you need to hide the word of god in your heart you need to hunger for the word of god in your heart and you need to hold the word of god close to your heart let's talk about that first hide the word of god in your heart hide it i'm using the scripture there how can a young man this is psalm 119:9 keep his way pure You say, well, it's impossible for a young person to keep his way pure. No, it's not. If you have the spirit of the living God living in you, and the psalmist is going to say, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your, what, word. In other words, here's the path of purity for a young man. It is to... Guard it according to your word. Psalm 119 verse 11, I have hidden, hidden, there's the point, or stored up your word in my heart that I might not, what, sin against you. Listen, this book has been given to you. This book has been given to you for sanctification. This book has been given to you. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, but young men, you must, I must, we as a church family hide that word in our hearts that I might not sin against you. You've heard me say this before. Sin will keep you from this book or this book. Will keep you from sin, say why did I what do you mean sin will keep me from this book? Oh, just give in to all the temptations, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of the light, life, life give in to all of them, and you will find yourself real quick, isolating from everybody and everything. so here he says, listen i've I hidden I have stored up your word in my heart for this purpose that I might not sin against you. You know, I Spencer was telling me, I mean, we have uh, reality, seventh and eighth grade for your precious children. He's going through the book of Genesis, specifically Joseph. Joseph with Potiphar's wife. You remember the account, I won't turn you there. When, when she grabbed him and he basically said something like this. How could I commit this great sin and sin against who? God. He, he must have had such a high view of God and such a heart for God that was stored down that in the moment of his greatest temptation, he didn't want to sin against God. Listen hide the word of God in your heart. Satan will find your weakness. He will exploit you. And you need to use the sword of the word of God like a dagger with great precision. You say, okay, Scott, how does that work? Well, Let me just show you in Ephesians, okay? Just one example, okay? Go back to Ephesians. Let me just show you how that would work there. Do you remember when we were there when he said in Ephesians chapter 4, I think it was, there it is, where he says in verse 26, be angry, do not sin. 426, do not let the sin, excuse me, the sun go down on your, what, anger, verse 27, and give the opportunity to the, what, the devil. What what, what do you mean? Well, remember, as you show anger, you can go back and listen to that tape. Usually, our anger is not righteous anger. Righteous anger is when God's glory is is pushed down our anger is because probably we didn 't get our own way, so he says don 't let the sun go down on your anger and get and give no opportunity to the devil. Well, he then applies it in first twenty nine here 's one of the ways to deal with anger. Let no corrupting talk, no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such a word. Only such as is good for what? Building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Listen, when you go into a difficult meeting with someone, you might want to take that precise statement there to let no corrupting talk, to let no filthy talk come out of your mouth, but only such a word that would build others up that fits the occasion that would give grace. So listen, I'm just saying that's how you use it. Maybe you're memorizing um, Ephesians 429. You're hiding the word of God in your heart that anger doesn't get the best of you. It's it's interesting if, if this is the flow of the text. Anger, I know, and you don't have to be a psychologist to know this, anger biblically doesn't come from a circumstance It doesn't come from an outward source. Where does anger arise? In the heart, and sometimes out of the heart, the mouth what speaks. And if you get angry in a conflict situation, you could be going down the wrong path. Okay, then what can I do? Take your Makaira sword, the Word of God, and memorize Ephesians four twenty nine. You say, well, Scott, my problem isn't that I'm battling lust. I'm battling temptation. It's all over. It will be posted on the Super Bowl for an hour at halftime. Everything that is done in that halftime show is an allurement to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The way they dress... The words that come out of their mouth, the way they dance. I'm just saying, I don't want to ruin your day, okay? Um, But you know, and I know that everything is to lure you out of your safe spots. Satan would do that. Certainly, our flesh does that. You say, how can I overcome that? Well, um, I would say, look at 5 1 of Ephesians. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, In other words, we don't want to imitate the things of the world. We want to imitate the ways and the character of God. So there is a specific word to a specific temptation. So we hide the word of God in our heart. And let me finish this first practical exhortation just so you don't feel overwhelmed. How about just read it? Just read it. So many of you are. I want to encourage you to keep doing that. Just read it. What did you do today, Scott, when you woke up? I read the Bible. You say, well, why? Because I need the Bible. You say, but Scott, you spent 20 hours in this text. I did. (laughs) But I don't want to become a professional pastor. And so I get my Bible and my app and I Read the word of God Why? Because I'm trying to store up Something for a bad day Trying to store something up as Satan And the evil one comes I pray that you would I Think Andy this is the secret of the one on one Reading that, there, that is going on With our men You're just reading scripture and then articulating Secondly can I say this You need to hunger for the word of God In your heart Hunger you hide it but then you hunger for the word of God. And I, of course, 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow in respect to salvation. You need to hunger for this book. You need to hunger for this word. Uh, I love the statement. Many of you know it by heart. Blessed, happy, Blessed, happy is this man in Psalm 11, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates, what, day and night, day and night. There is a hiding, there is a hungering, and I just want to encourage you to that. Our church will be as mature, I suppose a couple factors in there, as mature as our leaders, starts there, doesn't end there obviously, but it will be as mature as you, in, not in the pew, but in the seat, because we don't have pews, right? Right? And so we have to be as people that are meditating on it day and night. There's an account of Hudson Taylor, one of my favorite biographies I've ever read. He's the founder of the China Inland Mission, a famous missionary. And he conquered these daily trials by the meditation on the word of God. His son, uh, Hudson Taylor's son, wrote a biography about his dad. And here's what he said. It is not easy for Mr. Taylor, or it was not easy for Mr. Taylor, to make time for prayer and Bible study, but he knew that it was vital. And he said that his son in that biography, well, do the writers remember traveling with him month after month in northern China by cart and wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow, with the poorest of the inns at night when only one large room for coolies and travelers alike they would screen off the curtains is what his son said. Lots of people in there. Then after the sleep had brought a measure of quiet they would hear a match struck and see the flicker of candlelight which told them about Mr. Taylor, he said, however weary, what was he doing? He was poring over the little Bible always at hand from 2 to 4 a.m., the time he usually gave to prayer, uh, the time he could be most sure that he would be undisturbed as he waited upon God. Now, listen, I didn't say that to make you feel guilty, okay? But if he's getting up 2 to 4 What are we doing with this sharp dagger that wants to heal, that wants to bless, that wants to cause you to forgive another an offense against you? Your means here is to hide the word of God in your heart. Secondly, to hold the word of God in your heart. And I would say to that, not only read it, but secondly, meditate on it in order to defeat the evil one. And finally, and thirdly, I would say you hunger for it. Thirdly, you hold it, okay, in your heart. You hold it in your heart. The writer Moses in Deuteronomy 32 said, take to heart. Listen to these words. This is Deuteronomy 32, 46, and 47. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, and I command and, and that you, listen to this, dads and moms, command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but it is your very life. So listen, as you hide it, as you hunger for it, thirdly, you've got to hold it to keep it near and dear because, listen, you need to be careful to do all of it because it is your very life. I might say read it, meditate on it, and study it. Did you ever go to a hotel shirt and you have and, Sometimes you might even check. Is inside that drawer what lies there? Lies a Gideon Bible. In most of those Bibles, there's the opening statement there. And I wonder if we could heed that opening statement before it proceeds with Genesis 1. The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its history's true, its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, it is the pilgrim's staff, it is the pilot's compass, it is the soldier's sword and the Christian's charter. Here too heaven is opened and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, it should rule the heart and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently. And prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth. A paradise of glory. A river of pleasure. It is given to you in life. And it will be opened at the judgment. And remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility. Rewards the greatest labor. And will condemn all who trifle. With its sacred contents. Contents, And you're holding it. So listen. Hide it hunger for it and hold it near and dear to your heart, that we might pick up this sword and use it against Satan and his host of demons. Would you bow with me?